I doubt that very many of us change our own oil anymore. Maybe some do. I don't know. If I were to ask most people, how do you change your oil? They'd say, I drive to Jiffy Lube. I mean, that's, that's the answer. But most of us are old enough, lived in the sticks long enough that we, that we remember. Maybe some of us still do change and change our own oil. And so we are at least familiar with the process, aren't we? So some of you that know how to change your own oil, tell me a little bit about how that works. How do you go about that? All right, you, you take out the plug, you drain the oil, all right? Put the plug back in, that's an important step. Change the oil filter. Put new oil in. Oh, check the, check the dipstick, that's important too. Oh, somebody said it. Put the cap back on. Dude, don't do like Walmart. Don't leave, don't put the cap back on. I've had that happen. So yeah, you 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 drain the oil, right? You you uh change, change, change the filter, put the plug back in, pour the new oil in. There there's a process that you go through. So if I were to change my oil. And the way I went about it was I poured in new oil, and then I replaced the cap, then I removed the filter, then I replaced the filter. Would that work? No. Wouldn't get the same result. I'm going to have a great big mess on my hands very quick. See, to, to, to get the oil change done properly, you have to understand the steps and you have to understand why you're doing the step, because if you don't get that, then you're going to do something wrong, and you're going to ruin an engine. It can happen very easily. There's a lot of things that are that way. You ladies that cook, there's recipes that you have to do in a certain order, and if you don't do them in a certain order, you're going to wind up with something that you don't want, something that people can't eat, maybe. If you guys have ever bought some of that prefab furniture down at Office Depot or Walmart and you just went home and you popped open the box and you started putting random pieces together that looked good to you, chances are pretty good you had to take it back apart and do it again. Because there really is an order for many things. An order in which they have to be done or you don't get the desired result. Well, I'm going to tell you this morning that salvation is one of those things. Salvation has... Not a lot of moving parts, but it has a few steps. And those steps have to be gone through in a particular order because if you don't go through them in the correct order, then what you have, in fact, is something different than salvation. A lot of people don't know that. I'm going to tell you the truth. Very, very few churches teach it. Very, very few people understand it. And one reason that we are so committed to talking about it here, and by the way, I, I'm sure you're aware of our icons back there on the wall. We've talked about it many times, what they mean, but I try to hit it periodically so you don't forget. It's head to heart, heart to hands, hands to feet. We've got the icon of the head. Why? Because we want you to know the gospel. We want you to understand salvation. We want you to understand what it is and precisely how it works. But the reality is, more people miss it than get it. There are a lot of people that think they're saved that are probably not. And there are a lot of people who don't think that they can be saved who easily could be. 
But the thing is, if we misunderstand salvation, not only will we miss salvation, but everything that we believe about God will wind up being twisted and warped based on what we think about that one issue. And so this morning, I want to clarify for you, and I hope you don't check out because you may not know it as good as you think you do. I want to clarify for you exactly what the order of salvation should be. And a way I want to clarify it to you is I want us to look at two different passages in the Bible. Both of them are uh, things that, that Jesus was involved in, stories that Jesus was involved in. Both of them are completely different. And yet between the two of them, they paint one very solid picture of salvation. And so with that said this morning, I want us to begin by looking at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. In fact, we're going to stay in Luke quite a bit this morning. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Said Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. And there was a man there named Zacchaeus. And he was the chief tax collector in the region and had become very rich. And he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He is gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those which are lost. What just happened here? What took place here? It's not a hard question. Jesus answered it. Look down at about verse 9, I think. Yeah, Jesus said, salvation has come to this home. Somebody got saved. Who got saved? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus got saved. How did it happen? How did he get saved? What was the catalyst for this man coming to know the Lord? I mean, if you look at it superficially, you're going you're gonna to miss it, I think. I mean, Zacchaeus wasn't really doing anything to seek out salvation here. He really wasn't. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And uh, the Bible says that he, in verse 7, as a matter of fact, that he was not only a tax collector, but he was a notorious sinner. In other words, he wasn't just a tax collector, but he was a particularly bad one. Tax collecting back in that day was not a very good business. I mean, it was lucrative, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't a very moral or ethical business. We have some of those in the world today. And uh, in this particular business... Collecting taxes was kind of like owning a franchise. You were given a region of responsibility by the Roman government. 
And it was your responsibility to collect the required monies from people in your region. And if you were smart enough, you might collect a little bit more. Or you might be subject to bribing people. You could make it into a very lucrative kind of thing. And people knew that Zacchaeus was capable of those things. And they also hated Zacchaeus because he was a representative of the Roman government. And they believed that Rome was a foreign, pagan, oppressive power. And it was everybody's desire, everybody's desire in that region to see their control cast off. And so here's the very representative of the people they hate. Guys, nobody loves Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a man who knows what it is to be rejected. He is detested by the religious community. And so this man, he, he's not going out to see Jesus with any great religious expectations. He's just like everybody else. He's heard of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the talk of the town. Jesus is a holy man. He's known to be that. If you talk to people and ask them who is Jesus, it's really, it would be kind of hard for them to put him in the appropriate little box, I think. But they knew that he was a holy man. They knew that he was a teacher that had come from God. They knew that he had a special connection with God because he proved it almost on a daily basis by the miracles that he did. And so Jesus was known and Zacchaeus wanted to come out to see this man named Jesus. Had no expectations. And when he went out to see Jesus, he couldn't see him because of the crowd. And so it says for him to get a better view, he climbed up a sycamore tree. Now again, understand he didn't have any expectations going on here. But all of a sudden as Jesus approaches that tree, he looks right up in the tree. He sees Zacchaeus up there and he speaks to him. And he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I've got to stay at your house today. Can you see how unexpected that is? Do you think when he climbed that tree that there was any fleeting thought? Do you think when he got up that morning and even went to his station that there was any fleeting thought that this, this holy man, Jesus Christ, the most outstanding religious figure of his day, would look up and point at him and say, Zacchaeus, you notorious tax-collecting sinner, i got to stay with you today. The furthest thing from his mind. You talk about somebody that didn't see that day, his day unfolding that way. That was, that was Zacchaeus. I think if anything, Zacchaeus probably expected that just by showing up, he was going to be abused. He was used to being rejected. He was used to being hated. He was used to, to people saying, man, we don't want you around. But what he wasn't used to is somebody of such stature looking at him and saying, Zacchaeus, you're the guy I want to stay with today. I need to have lunch with you today. Completely unexpected. Let's call that unmerited, undeserved, unexpected grace. You with me? Unmerited. He didn't do anything to get it. Undeserved, unexpected grace. What was the impact of that grace on Zacchaeus? What happened with Zacchaeus? What was the impact? 
The catalyst was Jesus inviting him to go to the house. What was the impact on him? His heart was changed. I mean, his heart was completely changed. And, and how do we know his heart was changed? Well, we know it because as, as you continue reading, you see that he came to repentance. Look at verse 8. You with me in Luke chapter 19, beginning verse 8, it says, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord, and he said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I've cheated anyone on their taxes, I will give them four times as much. Here is a man who is turning from a life of thievery and bribery and everything else and saying, Lord, right here, right now, I'm telling you, I'm a changed man. I'm going to do it different. I'm going to give the poor half. And if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. That is a consequential change. And Jesus, seeing that repentance, Jesus perceiving that change that happened in Zacchaeus' heart, said what? He said, today, salvation has come to this house. So what is the pattern? Or what is the order in which things happen here? Because this is important. What's the order that things happened in? The order is, first of all, there was grace. All right? That's the number one thing. The grace of God through Jesus Christ came into his life when Jesus looked at him up in that tree and he said, Zacchaeus, I have to come to your house today. Unexpected, undeserved, unmerited grace. Jesus had no reason to do that. Zacchaeus had no reason to expect that. Grace is the first thing that happens here. The second thing that happens here is Zacchaeus, because Jesus loved him and accepted him and wanted to be with him, Zacchaeus' heart was changed. That's the second. So the first thing that happens is grace. The second thing that happens is there is a change of heart. Zacchaeus is so humbled by the love of Christ that it flips some kind of switch inside of him. And he is no longer the same person. And as a result of that changed heart, what we see then, number three, is repentance. So there is grace, there is a change of heart, and then there's this complete repentance where Zacchaeus said, You know what, whatever I was before, Lord, I am no more. I'm moving forward in a complete and different way. And that then is, brings up step four where Jesus declared... Today, salvation has come to this home. How did Jesus know that salvation had come? On what basis did Jesus say, today, salvation has come to this home? It's not a hard thing to see. He knew it by the repentance. Repentance was, in fact, the evidence of Zacchaeus' salvation, not its cause. It's important to see that. Repentance was the evidence that Zacchaeus had received salvation. It was not the cause of his salvation. The cause of his salvation was the grace of God through Jesus Christ who loved him and, and came and, and, and into his home. So the order we have here is grace, changed heart, and repentance. And when repentance comes, salvation is recognized. And so salvation and repentance are very, very closely tied together. And let me tell you something, folks. Where you see genuine repentance, there is salvation. And where you see salvation, 
guess what? There's genuine repentance. It's like two sides of the same coin. That's what we see in this story. This is a salvation story. This is an example of what salvation looks like and how it works. Now let's look at the polar opposite. I want you to go to Luke chapter 18, verse 18. It's a long way away. Hope you can find it. Luke 18, 18. Let's look at the polar opposite of what we've just seen. It says, once a religious leader asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. And you must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. And the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And Jesus heard his answer and he said, There is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw this, he said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this said, Then who in the world can be saved? And he replied, What is impossible for people is possible with God. Okay, let's stop right there. What's happening here? What's going on here? What do you see? Someone is coming to Jesus ostensibly to be saved, right? I mean, here you have this rich young man. That's what the Bible refers to him in most versions. It calls him a religious leader here. If you look in Mark, you look in Matthew, you're going to see rich young man or rich young ruler. This, this young man, he comes and he kneels in front of Jesus and he says, What must I do to gain eternal life? That sounds like to me somebody wants to know how to be saved, right? And you would almost expect a gospel presentation to follow, but a gospel presentation doesn't follow. Instead, what we get is kind of a surprising answer. Jesus said, well, if you want to be saved, what you need to do to answer your question, Jesus says, verse 20, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely and honor your father and your mother. So Jesus said, all right. You want eternal life? Here's what you do. You obey the commandments. Now, you got to know, the young man at this point is feeling pretty good about himself because he knows that he is already following the commandments. And so he, he, he says, Lord, Lord, I, I've already done that. At this point, he must be thinking, man, I'm already in. Can I suggest a possibility to you? I think that this is exactly the picture that the young man had in his mind when he went out to meet Jesus that day. I think whenever he scampered out there, found Jesus at the head of the crowd, knelt down before him because that's exactly what happened. He kind of butted through, raced up to the front of the line, got in front of Jesus. He knelt down and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I suggest to you that that. When Jesus said what you need to do is obey the commandments, I think that's exactly what he pictured in his mind. 
I think he saw himself getting down in front of Jesus and saying, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Well, you know the commandments. And list off a few of the commandments. And the young man saying, Oh my Lord, I've already done that. And Jesus would look around. And he would say to him, You've done well, my son. He'd look at the crowd and he would say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Go and do like this young man if you want to have eternal life. I really think he had that kind of picture in his mind. To put it another way, I think he was virtue signaling. Have you ever heard of virtue signaling? It's kind of a new term, but it's a very old practice. Virtue signaling is the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or their moral correctness. Virtue signaling is the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions intended to demonstrate one's good character or their moral correctness. I think that's exactly what was happening here. Now, in our culture, virtue signaling happens a lot on social media. So if you, and this is where the term has originated from. So if you get on social media, for example, and you see one of the little rainbow flags, immediately that's telling you something. It's telling you that this person sees themselves as a kind and tolerant and open-minded and virtuous person because they are tolerant and accepting of all different kinds of people. And that's exactly what, that's exactly the message that they want to send. They're sending a message when they put that little flag on their Facebook page. People are also sending a message when they put an American flag, or maybe even better yet, an American flag with a, like with an M16 emblazoned across the front of them. They are also virtual, virtue signaling. What are they telling you? They're telling you, I'm a good American. I'm a patriotic person. I believe that the United States is an exceptional country. I stand behind our military. I stand behind our police. This is who I am. This is my character. I want the world to know it. They're signaling something. I think this young man anticipated that he was going to be able to show off his own moral goodness whenever he went and knelt in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that he already believed that he knew how to get to heaven. He just wanted Jesus to affirm that that was true, preferably in front of witnesses, so that everyone could see that here was a young man in our community that was doing everything that needed to be done in order to please the Lord. I think that that may have been what was going on in his mind. But Jesus saw through this. Jesus saw what was going on, and instead of going into some kind of a gospel presentation, Jesus kind of plays his own game. He said, okay. He said, well, if you really want to get to heaven, and you're already following the commandments, then there's one little thing you lack. I need you to go sell everything you have, give your money to the poor, come follow me, then you'll have treasure in heaven. You have no idea how shrewd that was. Because in that one little statement, Jesus caused this man to sin in two ways. He caused him, first of all, to have to come to grips with the fact that he did not love the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind, but he actually loved his money more than he loved the Lord. He had to confront that. 
He also had to confront the fact that he was not, in fact, a person that always obeyed all of the commandments, that, in fact, he had a covetous heart. And so in that little statement that Jesus made to him, he revealed two big sins in this young man's life. And this young man found himself unable or unwilling to do what Jesus had asked him to do. And it says that he went away sad. And Jesus pointed out to the disciples in verse 24 that this young man went home lost. Look at verse 24. It's a unique way that Jesus does it. When Jesus saw this, he said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? And he replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. The disciples were shocked. If someone like this, who was obedient to the commandments, who was a good manager of their money and their affairs, who sought Jesus out and asked him how to be saved, if that person couldn't be saved, then who in the world could be saved? And yet the reality was that this young man, the Bible says, went away lost. That's what Jesus is is telling us here. He went away lost. And if we go back and look at what happened to Zacchaeus, we see that Zacchaeus got saved. So how is it that a notorious sinner that wasn't even looking for God, all of a sudden found God and got saved? And here you have a young man who is seemingly wanting to find the way to salvation, walks away not being saved. Well, let's look at the order of things just for a minute. We looked at the order of things when we looked at Zacchaeus' life. Let's look at the order of things here. First of all, the first thing that we see going on here is this young man's assumption or presumption that he is good. When he goes out to meet with Jesus, he already knows that he is following all the commandments. He anticipates that Jesus is going to affirm him for obeying all the commandments and say, good job, a boy. But even if Jesus makes some other demand on his life, his intention is to say, all right, Lord, I will do it. Don't miss that. That is his intention. That's the reason when he kneels in front of Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must, good teacher, what must I do? Just tell me what to do. Jesus, I'm already doing a lot of good stuff. You're a good teacher. I'm a good guy. We're both doing good things. But Jesus, if you tell me something else good that I need to do to close the deal, then then don't worry. I will do it. He is beginning under the assumption and presumption that he has it within himself to enter the kingdom of God. Someone just needs to tell him how. He can do it. You just show me how. You show me how, I'll get into the kingdom of God. That's his mindset in this meeting with Jesus. And I've got to tell you something, guys. I think that that is the exact same pattern of, of salvation that a lot of Christians still hold on to today. I think if you look at this, the order of things that's happening here, this young man is basically saying this. He's saying, if I am good enough, right? If I am good enough... And I do the right things God wants me to do, right? First step, if I am good enough. Second step, God will accept me. Third step, I will inherit eternal life. 
And I said just a moment ago, I think a lot of Christians hold that same exact view. If I just do the right things, now step one. Step two, God will accept me. Step three, I will inherit eternal life. There's a problem with that. I want you to look at Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. If you hold that view, I really do want you to get it this morning that there's a problem with the view that you hold. Romans chapter 4, and I could have just as easily went, I think, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but let's do it here. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. Paul here is talking about the nature of salvation. He's talking about the goodness of Abraham. And in verse 4, he gets to this. He says, when people work, all right, when people do stuff, when people work, their wages are not a gift. True? When you go to work and you do your job because that's what you were hired to do and they give you a check, that check is not a gift. It's something you earn. So Paul says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but it's something they have earned. But people are counted righteous not because of their work. They are counted righteous because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And so if the order of salvation that you have carried around in your mind is I will get my act together, then I will start living better, and then God will accept me, and then I will be saved, you completely misunderstand the nature of salvation. What this passage tells us is that nobody gets to heaven because they are good or because they have done something to earn God's merit. The only people who get there are those people who know they can't get there on their own, so they have to trust somebody else to get them in, which happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that Zacchaeus entered the kingdom of God and the rich young ruler didn't was because Zacchaeus was under no illusion that he could get there on his own. He knew if he was going to get there, it was going to require more grace than he could even wrap his mind around. I would submit to you, he probably thought of himself as an impossible case. So Zacchaeus didn't think he could get into heaven, but the rich young ruler was pretty sure he could. And that is the difference in these two stories. Which brings me to this paradox. The number one reason that people go to hell is not because they're bad, but because they believe they're good. It's crazy. It's a paradox. It's hard to wrap our minds around. It doesn't make sense to us. But the reality is the number one reason that people go to hell is not because they're bad, but because they consider themselves good. Think about it. Bad people have no choice but to cry out to God's mercy. Because they have already realized that they are never going to measure up to any kind of standard of godliness in their own power. And so they, they hit some bottom in their life. They crash into some wall. Some crisis happens. And, and, and they know they're as lost as a goose in a snowstorm. They know their life is a wreck. And they cry out to God for mercy because they have nowhere else to turn. 
And when God's mercy flows into their life, what happens? When they cry out for God's mercy and all of a sudden His presence surrounds them and they feel and they know in their heart of hearts that God has accepted them, that Christ died for them, that they are forgiven, what happens inside? A change. A change. Their hearts are so dramatically changed. It's a pivot point. It's a marker that they can look back on in their life and they can say, before this point, I was one way. After this point, I was a complete different way. Before this point, I was in my flesh. After this point, I was born again. Before this point, I didn't care what God thought. After this point, I never, ever again want to offend my heavenly Father. That's what happens when bad people cry out for mercy. Good people, on the other hand, have no reason to repent. Not really. I'm not saying that they don't know that they're required to repent. I'm not saying that they don't know that repentance is a good thing. It's just that in their minds, they haven't really done anything all that bad to begin with. And really the only thing that they need to do to, to, to get right with God is, is just kind of follow His teachings a little bit better and, and then God's going to be okay with them. In fact, to the degree that they do repent, it's, it's usually a kind of a work. It's something that they do in order that God will accept them. In other words, they believe... That if God requires something and they do it, then God will accept them. But what they fail to realize is that repentance is not so much a work as it is a gift. I want you to look at two verses real quickly in the book of Acts. We're going to go to Acts chapter 5 verse 31. And I'm going to be reading these out of two versions because I think that the translation job and the NLT misses something on both of these. I want to go to Acts chapter 5, verse 31, first of all. And what I want us to see is that repentance, guys, is a gift. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Here, uh, we're, we're catching the end of Peter teaching about Christ. And in verse 31, Peter says, Then God put him, Jesus Christ, in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so that the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. Let me read this out of the NRSV. God exalted him, Jesus Christ, to his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I think the King James Version tracks that same way. And the word is gives. I've looked at it. God, Jesus through Jesus Christ, was intended to give repentance to Israel. Let's look now at Acts chapter 11, verse 18. There's actually several of these we could look at. I think two is sufficient. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Again, Peter is speaking. He's talking about what happened at Cornelius' house. 
Acts chapter 11, verse 18, he winds it up by saying this. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. And they, and they said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Again, this translation misses it a little bit. Listen to it this way. When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given, even to the Gentiles, repentance that leads to life. What I'm trying to get you to see this morning is that repentance is not so much something that we do. It's not so much a work as it is a gift that is bestowed. The Bible itself can be a little bit unclear on this point because again and again, particularly in the book of Acts, you see again and again, repent and you'll be saved. Repent and you'll be saved. Repent and you'll be saved. I can almost understand why we get it wrong and why we think that it is a work that we have to do in order to be accepted by God. And I don't want you to leave here confused this morning, guys. Repentance is required for salvation. No one will ever enter the kingdom of God if they have not repented. But the $64 question is, what is repentance? Is repentance doing good works so that God will accept us? In other words, is it cleaning us? Is it us getting our act together and cleaning up our life so that God will accept us? Is that what repentance is? Or is it God's grace coming alive and, and awakening in us in such a way that it changes our hearts so that we cannot help but do good works. Is repentance a work that we do to be accepted by God? Or is repentance something that comes into our heart as a result of us coming to understand the grace of Christ? That is the question. To be sure. Repentance is something we do, but why do we do it? Do we do it to be accepted by God, or do we do it because we know in our hearts we have already been accepted? There is a great difference in those two orders, and how you understand them will shape everything about your religious life, everything that you do as a Christian. And I think the two stories that we've looked at this morning pretty well answer the questions that I've just asked you. Here's something you need to understand. Guys, God is never going to love you more than he loves you right here, right now, this morning. Never, his love's never going to be one bit greater for you. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter how you do He's not going to love you more. The availability of God's forgiveness is never going to be more open to you than it is right now this morning. You, you can be forgiven just as easily right now, right here today, as you can be five years down the road when you decide to get your act together because that doesn't have anything to do with it. God's love and forgiveness are available to you right here, right now. And He's not waiting on you to get your act together. I want you to look at Romans, and here's where we're going to close. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read this together. Romans chapter 5, verse 6.
I want you to really pay attention as we go through this. And this is where we close. Romans 5, 6. Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at the right time, just the right time, and died for us sinners. When did Christ die for us sinners? When we were utterly helpless. When we were incapable even of getting our act together. Before we even considered any of that, when we were utterly, utterly, utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time. He died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might possibly be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die when we were still sinners. And since... We have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ. He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son while we were still His enemies, when was was our relationship with God established through Christ when we were still His enemies? We will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Again, I'm just going to repeat what I have said over and over this morning. God's love and God's forgiveness will never be more available to you than it is right now. It's already there for the taking. You don't have to jump through a hoop to get it. You just have to understand how great God's mercy is for you. And I'll tell you something, if you can wrap your mind around this paragraph that we've just read, if you can wrap your mind around it, you will not have to stress out too much about repentance because if you ever get this, you will repent. That's what happened to Zacchaeus. That's how Jesus knew that Zacchaeus was saved. Salvation doesn't begin when we get our act together. Salvation begins when we grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ that is already there for us. If we will simply see it, experience it, and believe it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name. We read right past the little story of Zacchaeus. We almost just see it as a little story that's been put in the Bible for children, and yet it is so profound and it is so deep. Because here is a man who was utterly hopeless, who was utterly helpless, and before he had done anything good or bad, the grace of God intervened in his life. And he was never the same again. Lord, I don't even know how to pray. I know that people can understand what I'm saying mentally. But I'm not sure how many people can grasp it in their hearts. Lord God, that's something that only you can do. Only you can really help this message penetrate the heart. But I just pray right now, Heavenly Father, that you would look out and you would hear the minds that are thinking right now, the minds that are processing right now. 
that you would see the questions that people have. And there are some who are hearing this message, and to them it makes no sense, but there are others who are hearing this message, and for the first time they have hope. Lord God, calls them to act on that hope. I pray, Father God, that you would take your hand and walk them across the line. Let them sense your presence right now. Let the truth soak into their mind. Let it run down into their heart so that they say, My Lord and my God, I see it. I get it. And now, Lord, I never want to do anything that would be against your will or against my Heavenly Father again. Jesus knew salvation had come to Zacchaeus because he saw the repentance. I pray, Father God, that we too might see repentance here this morning. I lift it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. For this sermon and many more, check out our website at www.cowboyfaith.org.